We've been looking at some of the therefore sayings of the Apostle Paul, and we've made his letters to the Romans our starting point. Paul is going to provide his readers with a comprehensive explanation of what the gospel is, and how the gospel works, and what the gospel does in the life of a sinner. And he begins by talking about sin. There's no understanding the gospel if you've no understanding of sin. There's no seeing your need of the gospel if you've not seen yourself as you are in your sin. And sin is what it is because of who God is. If there was no God, there would be no such thing as sin. There is no moral benchmark anywhere at all if there is not in heaven a God who is altogether holy, holy, holy. The holiness and majesty of God have been in existence for all eternity. And it is the rejection of him and it is rebellion against him and it is the transgression of his law which makes sin to be sin and which puts us in need of salvation. It's important to remind ourselves that God comes first in all of this. That might sound rather obvious, but there's always a danger when, communica when communicating the gospel that this message of good news places sinful men and women and what God can do for you right at the centre of the message. That would be a grave mistake. It is God who is at the centre of the message of the gospel. The God whom you've rejected and against whom you've transgressed, the God whom you've offended, he holds out to you a gift of inexpressible grace. And to be brought to salvation requires the sinner to see himself, to see herself as they truly are in their sin, as they stand before this all-holy and all-majestic God. And then to repent before him. If that does not happen, they will not and they cannot be saved. It's bringing sinners to that place which is the work of the Holy Spirit. You remember the woman who wept over Christ's feet and anointed them with oil in Luke chapter 7. She loved Jesus much, we are told. Why? Because of the way her life had been transformed? No. Now I'm sure her life had been transformed and I'm sure her life had been wonderfully transformed. But Jesus tells us that her transformed life was not the reason why she did what she did. She loves me much, this much, because she knows that her very many sins are forgiven. She loves much because she knows she's been forgiven much. And that's it right there. And why is being forgiven your many sins such a big issue? It's because being accountable and answerable for those sins before a holy God is such a big issue. 
to present the gospel as something that God can do for you to make your life better and to make the sinner the centre of it all is to completely miss the point of the gospel. This is why John opens his account of Christ's gospel ministry by drawing our attention to this eternal God. The opening five verses are a simple yet stunningly comprehensive account of the person and work of God and of our total dependence upon him. It is because this God exists and it is because we exist only because of this God that the gospel makes any sense at all. It's because we've offended this God and made ourselves to be his enemy, placed ourselves under his judgment. It's only because of that that the gospel makes any sense at all. And it's that predicament that the gospel resolves for us through the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Paul begins with the most thorough and clear explanation of sin, what it is, where it came from, what it does to us, what it will bring upon us in the future, what all that means for me, and why I desperately need to have something done about it. That's what the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ is all about. This is the issue for which God the Father sent his only begotten Son into the world to die. This is the issue which makes even COVID-19 just pale into insignificance compared to this. And it's having laid out these realities concerning sin that Paul then presents and expands upon the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, last time we considered three things using the second half of chapter 4 and through to verse 11 of chapter 5. We saw there that if you're a Christian, you are saved by Christ, by grace. That in him, you are justified and reconciled to God. And that by faith, you are made righteous. Now, if you missed any of that, if you've missed any or all of those first three messages that we've had so far, you can find them on our church website and you can catch up with those. So by the end of chapter 5 of Romans, Paul has explained what it is that happens to a sinner in order that they may be declared by God to be justified and reconciled and saved and made righteous in his sight. And now in chapter 6, Paul starts to explain the great change of life that takes place in one who has been saved by grace. There was a lot of confusion in the early church, and one suggestion that was doing the rounds was that if you claimed to be saved from your sins by grace, if you continue to sin, whilst claiming that those sins are covered by God's grace, then you are actually demonstrating just how great God's grace is. It's as if you're saying, look at these awful sins that I'm committing. Aren't they terrible? Therefore, 
How wonderful God's grace must be if it covers sins like this. And on and on you go in your sins, thinking that this somehow extols God's grace. There is a kind of logic in it, I suppose, but Paul stamps down on the suggestion straight away. Certainly not, he says. Absolutely no. That is not the way to think, and it's most certainly not, not the way to behave. Because to think like that is to completely ignore a vital component of gospel truth, which we find there in Romans chapter 6 and at verse 2. Certainly not, says Paul to that suggestion, how shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? And Paul then goes on from there in the following verses to explain what he means by that. And two key points are drawn out by the Apostle Paul as he expands verse 2 and explains what all of that means. And he mentions two key things. The first is union with Christ. That the Christian believer is united to the Lord Jesus Christ in a very particular way, with a very particular effect and result. So that's the first thing, union with Christ. But then alongside that, he talks about disunion from sin. So we have these two statements, on one on either side. First of all, union with Christ. And secondly, disunion from sin. So we have this connection with Christ on the one side and this disconnect from sin on the other. And that's what he's going to explain. So first of all, he says that as a Christian, you enter into this state of union with Christ. And so if you look down from verse 3 and through the following verses, you'll see various phrases. In verse 3, baptised into his death. Into his death. Verse 5, united together in the likeness of his death. Verse 6, our old man, our old sinful self, was crucified with him. And then a fourth time in terms of Christ's death, verse 8, we died with Christ. So there's that union with Christ in his death. And then, just looking back to verse 4, uh, what happens after you die? Well, you're buried. We were buried with him through baptism into death but you see with him into death and then of course the third day Christ rose again and what does it say here in connection with the resurrection verse 5 
in the likeness of his resurrection. Verse 8, we live with him. So what Paul is saying here is really quite simple, but it's unbelievably profound and it lies at the very heart of our Christian experience and living. Christ's death was your death and you died with him. His burial was your burial and you were buried with him. His resurrection is your resurrection and his resurrection life is your resurrection life. So that as God looks upon you, he sees you with his son in all of those things that Christ experienced. You were there with him. So, yes, Christ was crucified on the cross as your substitute, but at the same time you were there with him. It was your death. He died. Which is why we speak of this work of Christ as being all-sufficient in his death and his burial and his resurrection for you. So that's the first point that Paul makes. Your union with Christ. And now let's turn to that second point. Disunion from sin. This disconnection from sin. Verses 6 and 7. That the body of sin might be done away with. That we should no longer be slaves of sin. He who has died has been freed from sin. I'm going to borrow the little illustration that Stuart Olliot uses when speaking on this theme. Here's a slave. The slave is shackled and bound. And the master of that slave is sin. The slave has no means of escape and no means of refusing the demands of the master. Whatever the master says, the slave must do. And the master is sin, so the slave's life is a life bound up in sin. One day, Another comes along who decides that he wants this sinful slave for himself. And he achieves that in a most remarkable way. He kills the slave. Now you might expect that he would kill the master. Well, one day that will be dealt with. But he actually kills the slave. And... That makes the slave of no use whatsoever to his original master, sin. And that first master has no power to do anything about his now dead slave. But the one who killed the slave is far more powerful than the old master. And he can do something about the dead slave.
what does he do? He removes the chains and raises that slave back to life again and claims that resurrected slave to be his own. And that's what God the Father has done for the Christian by means of their union with Christ. And that's what's, that's what's summarised by Paul at verse 4. Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so, we should walk in newness of life. And so now we have life in Christ, with sin's dominion over us broken. He's no, he's no longer our master anymore. We're no longer slaves of sin. And so we no longer live as we used to when we were slaves of sin. But it is the case that for a time, until we get to heaven, Christians do continue to live with a dilemma. Whilst sin no longer has mastery of you, it continues to seek to influence you. And it has the ability to still influence. You still have within you that which responds to sin, if you choose to let it. But that's the point. You now may choose not to let sin rule over you. Whereas previously you were its helpless slave. You're that helpless slave no more. Now you actually have a desire not to go sin's way. You have a conscience not to go sin's way. And to say no to that former master. And now in Christ, you are able to say no. The question is, will you? And that really is the whole point of this first part of chapter 6. Paul is laying down for you precisely what it is that God has done. What it is that is now true about you, which was not true about you before you were saved. And he draws it all to a conclusion from verse 11. First of all, remember and keep remembering what the truth is about you as a Christian. Now, the language that Paul uses, as we have it in our New King James translation, is to reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Remember that this is the reality of who you now are in Christ. Reckon yourselves. The word reckon comes from the world of accounting. It's an accounting term. When I first worked in a bank, one of the basic jobs that you were trained to do was to work as a cashier. Back then there were no debit cards, 
instant electronic transfers were the stuff of science fiction, it was all cash and checks and credit slips and pen and paper. And in my first branch, as we shut the door at 3.30 in the afternoon, as all banks did back then, our office manager would stand and say to all the cashiers, reckon up your tills, please. To reckon means to count, to compute, to calculate. On the till in front of me, I had a till book and all handwritten in those days was a record of all the transactions that the customers had done throughout the day. On one side was all the cash that I'd taken in and on the other side was all the cash that I'd given out. So you'd add up all your cash in and you'd add up all your cash out, you'd put the two together and that would tell me how much cash should be in my till. I knew what the starting balance in the till had been that morning and depending on if I'd had more cash in the balance would have gone up, if I'd more cash out the balance in the till would have gone down. So I arrive at a figure on a piece of paper and then I'd actually have to actually cash, uh, count the cash to show that what was in the till matched the figure in my book. The book says I should have this. And once I've counted it, I can say yes, this is what I have. And I have reckoned it. The book says it's this. And I say, yes, that's what it is. And that's what Paul is asking you to do here. God says, I am dead indeed to sin. And so that's what I'm going to be. And that's how I'm going to live. I'm going to reckon myself so that my life matches that truth by not letting sin reign in my body, verse 12, and by not obeying sin in its lusts. I will choose not to present my body as an instrument of unrighteousness, verse 13. God says I'm alive to him in Christ Jesus our Lord, verse 11. So that's what I'm going to be. And that's how I'm going to live. And I can do it because I am alive in him. I'm going to reckon myself so that my life matches the truth. I'm going to present myself to God as being alive from the dead. Because I am. And as an instrument of righteousness to God. Because that's what he's made me to be. And so this reckoning, you see, it requires me, it requires you to engage your mind and to engage your conscience with the truth of God's word. We thought this morning, didn't we, about the way the Bible 
often asks us to asks us to recall that which we know. That's that involves the mind. The Christian faith is a faith that draws the mind in. There's an understanding and a comprehension involved in being a Christian. Therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. Therefore do not let sin reign in your body, that you should obey it in its lusts. The exhortation for each of us is that we walk in newness of life. But crucially, this is not a self-help challenge. Thankfully, it's not a self-help challenge. Because if it were, none of us would even get off the starting blocks. This newness of life in which you are to walk has been won for you by Christ through his death and resurrection and on account of you being united to him and with him, dead indeed to sin, alive indeed to God. But how? In Christ Jesus our Lord. To walk in this new life is to walk in Christ. And for this, he has saved you. And for this, he has set you free.